0: Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast and with us today is David Pook. Hello. Good morning, happy to be here. Good morning. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of
2: who you are, what you do? Uh, Hi, my name's David Pook. Um, I'm the kind of founder of Life 110, which is a dedicated tuning company based on the Alpine A110. Uh, That's only 18 months old and I'm probably more known for... A career in vehicle dynamics development and delivery for the twenty years prior to that.
0: So, okay, let's let's sort of wind back a little bit. Mm-hmm. How did, you know, have you been a car nut forever? How did you get into this industry?
2: Um, yeah, I, I don't recollect a time in my life that <laughs> wasn't about cars. You know, um, as a kid, I used to make engine noises and drive matchbox cars around the carpet in my front room. Um, so I, yeah, I guess like a, a lot of people, I don't really know where it came from. <laughs> um, my dad was always big into bikes, but cars are a part of our lives from an early age. So I guess, yeah. I guess it's just from that really.
0: Yeah. And then, um, so did you, did you then go and study engineering or something or what was your path?
2: Uh, I actually wanted to do vehicle dynamics from a very young age and, I think um, my dad brought home an original Tamiya Sand Scorcher from Japan when they were first released. And I remember building it together and was fascinated by the workings of the suspension, you know, because it was miniature, but it all was to scale. Um, mm. And then I actually got into racing radio-controlled cars as a youngster into my teens and just general setup. And development of suspension so i kind of had this path of wanting to do vehicle dynamics from an early age so i chose gcsc's a levels degree that set me on that path mm-hmm. um career-wise so yeah degree in automotive engineering um is what i ended up doing before going into employment
0: and what is what is like vehicle dynamics um someone said like what is that
2: yeah so it's like uh it's People probably know it better as ride and handling as as terms, but vehicle dynamics is about a vehicle in motion, you know, so you're moving along the road, you're driving and asking the car to do things, you know, from a throttle and steering input, but also the environment's throwing things back to the car, side winds and bumps on the road. So it's about how that car behaves as it's in motion. That's what it's about as a subject.
0: Okay, okay. And that presumably is quite complicated engineering in in reality as opposed to just straight up, down, forward, backwards. Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's, uh, as a subject, it's massive. Because I think there's a common preconception that vehicle dynamics or ride and handling is suspension, which it isn't. It's it's the whole, it's a whole vehicle. So every element of the car has an effect on vehicle dynamics because of how much it weighs, you know, every part contributes to weight and where that weight is Um, inertia. So how hard it is to get that weight moving or rolling or so on and so forth. And then obviously you've got the suspension underneath that dealing with it all. So um, as a, as a topic, it's absolutely enormous when you consider going from, nothing to delivering a car that goes down the road that everyone likes, you know? So <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's massive as a subject and also takes a long time to do it. it it's so it, it's an era I was just fascinated from and, and still am. So, um, here we here we are talking about it.
0: Yeah. 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 I remember I read a, it was like a setup book or something about a year ago. Mm. And it started explaining. Um, oh, no, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna get this right. <laughs> but essentially, where you've got your suspension points and whatnot, yeah. and where the center of all that is, and how much. The, I guess it's like the roll center or something, yeah. something like that. How much it moves from left to right, up and down, and once it goes out of a certain region, everything just turns into chaos.
2: Yes. Yeah, so your roll centre is the correct word because the front and rear suspensions have a kind of like a a virtual point about which they roll, and um, you then have an axis because the front and rear suspensions have roll centres in different points. So rear is higher than front, for one example. And the C of G of the body will be a, a distance from that axis And that distance is about how much the car is going to roll. So if you have um, high roll centers and low center of gravity, your car is not going to roll very much. Whereas um, if you have low roll centers, but a high center of gravity, then it will roll a lot. So you can have cars that look very similar in their shapes, but depending on where the mass and what the suspension geometry is, the amount they roll could vary quite a lot. You know, and that's just, and as you say, as the car rolls, the roll centres move anyway. Just to complicate it even <laughs> further. Um, so, you know, and that's that's like a, a technical part of, you know, right-handing for sure. But it's just one of those many things.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just remember looking at it and going, "Oh, I can see how this gets very complicated very quickly." And also, how just changing suspension is is one thing, but yeah, it's clearly a. a sig- What percentage would you say is just literally like putting stuff in the right place and all the sort of basic stuff versus your actual suspension geometry components and stuff Um, like
2: that? Yeah, I think if you have the fundamentals wrong, as in a heavy car with a high C of G or fundamentally bad suspension geometry, then no matter how good you are at tuning and making the best of it it won't ever be as good as it could be you know and and getting the design fundamentals right to start with um Mm. doesn't cost any more money in the long run from getting them wrong you know because they're they're just parts aren't they so if you spend the time getting the fundamentals right then you'll get a better car once you've been through the tuning phase whereas if you get the fundamentals wrong at the start you'll try to overcome that with some clever tech or fine tuning and you'll end up spending more money making a car that's not as good so getting those fundamentals right to start with is um, absolutely key
0: just do certain manufacturers do you think work uh, get that right or does it, does everyone get it right now or are some people just seem to be much better yeah i think that nowadays what um, do you think
2: more more manufacturers get it right now than ever before because of the power of you know better process and the computers helping the design phases so um you know 20 years well when i was a kid reading car reviews you had to read a car review in car magazine to know if the car was any good or not and it could be a rubbish car or it could be a great car whereas these days you don't really get rubbish cars I don't think you get less good cars so every, all manufacturers have got better at getting kind of 80% of the way there and then there's a few that spend that extra time getting that last 20% of performance cuz they really want to and um yeah. you know so the there's still a good and bad differentiation but I think they're closer together than they ever were
0: yeah i was I was, I was driving yesterday, and um, I just—I you know, for some reason I was thinking about old cars and shit handling, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this concept that you know some cars were just fundamentally awful, and I—I th- I was thinking to about sort of modernish cars. It's like you push them to the limit, and they all kind of react pretty much, yeah. You know, the same four tires, and they don't do anything crazy, and nothing's pretty erratic. It's all just much of a muchness and then you just you can sort of see how it's going to handle based on where the engine's in the front engines in the back probably who made it all that sort of stuff um but yeah looking back at older stuff i guess it wasn't always like that with some crazy when you know working out new things or didn't understand
2: yeah and i think that's you know understanding isn't it engineering understanding is getting better um and the tools that we've got to kind of collect data or just do a better job of it. Um, so, and I and I think that cars. You know, when you get into these arguments about um, whether it was better in the old days, you know, because cars have got more, <laughs> you know, haven't got any character anymore. Um, I, I, yeah. yeah, you can't deny that cars are better than they've ever been. I think because yes. they are faster, they use less fuel if you crash them, you just get out. Um, You know, there's so many reasons why they're better, but that doesn't necessarily mean you enjoy them more. I think there's two different um, ways of looking at it, isn't there? You could, you know, we could go off into a philosophical discussion about what makes a a good car. But um, so I I think cars are better than they've ever been, but does that necessarily make you want to actually drive it for the fun of it? Not necessarily because they're two different things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if you take those to sort of the the end point of, like, how good can a car get, mm. kind of by empirically making a car better just sort of on paper, depends, I guess, how you define your parameters for what is good, but you sort of end up with a car that can probably drive itself and is never going to smash into anything and can, okay, probably corner it fifteen G <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> and and do naught to four thousand miles an hour and whatever which would probably be quite interesting. Um but it's not like i said it, we have these other constraints like roads. Yeah, absolutely. Which have speed limits. Yeah. And that that in itself completely destroys for me a lot of modern cars and their usability. Yeah. Whereas a friend of mine lives in Germany and he regularly goes on the Autobahn. Yeah. And he he has a McLaren 12C. (laughs) And he's like, I hit 200 every day. (laughs) It's mad, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Like, all those, that entire category of cars, like German cars with massive engines, like saloon cars, your 63, your 65, all those sort of stupid stuff that we go, that just doesn't make any sense. There, they're like, yeah, it does. Yeah. I can go flat out and I can go very quick. Yeah
2: here yeah and you not so much you um you know i've done a lot of autobahn testing in my life because Mm. um you have to you know you have to know what happens when you go at 155 miles an hour because otherwise you can't sell it yeah but you know over the last 25 years um the cars have got so much better at cruising at high speed because we've got better aerodynamic understanding and the tires have got better and things like that. Um, But also I think that the Autobahn has shaped the German kind of cars and character for quite a long time. You know, they um, Mm. 20 years ago, if we were Jaguar benchmarking a five series against S type as it was, I think. So, you know, talking 2001, 2002, you could jump in a five series and it would just sit at 130 mile an hour on the motorway all day long. And mm. the steering was fine it wouldn't scare you, you lifted it off in a corner it did nothing. The wipers worked you know if you things like this if you if you wanted to clean a window at 130 mile an hour, the wipers were fine. they just went up and down um, <laughs> you overtook a truck you thought nothing of it and then you would get in a, an early model S type and you'd be doing 130 mile an hour when both hands would be gripping the wheel because you, were, you you know you became nervous of the response levels and the when you went to wash the windows, the wipers would fly to the top of the screen and then struggle to come back down, um, you know, and, and it would be disturbed by sidewinds. And they're all things that, if you didn't go and do that type of testing in Germany, you wouldn't have known about, because why would you? But also, yeah. you'd come back and say, oh, S-Type's not very good at all these things at high speed, and you'd go into the, well, no one cares, who, who drives 130 mile an hour? And the answer is... Yeah you know, they do it in Germany. And the flip side of that is if you were then going down a winding country road in the UK, the S type is so much better than a five series and so much more engaging. So it becomes the matter of priority. And it's why our cars in Britain feel a certain way. German cars feel a certain way. You know, American cars are different. It's that environment shapes whole industries, doesn't it? Um, and I don't know. I don't know what the right and wrong answer is. Certainly, these days, if you take an XF and drive down the autobahn, it's as a fire series. You know, it's now yeah. to that standard where it will just cruise all day long at 130 mile an hour. Um, but at the same time, it's still more fun to drive on certain roads in the UK. So, you know, you just learn and get better at it and do a better job as you go along.
0: Yeah, I wish. It's it's definitely a major thing, isn't it? It's it's the one one of the countries that makes most of the cars that a lot of people want to buy yeah. does a significant portion of the people in that, that country spend a lot of time on autobahns and stuff and such like that. so they could be doing 155 miles an hour like regularly and you drive the cars here like you said and they're some most of them are so stiff yeah yeah it's just it's just the ride and the ride is just awful like it's it's pretty shocking, yeah. And you get in a sportier uh, car, of a German sportier car, whether it's your M three or whatever. Like you get in the latest M three, and it's like it's really quite aggressive. They, wh- why does it need to be like that? Yeah. I wish they did. I personally would be totally fine losing the a hundred and let's just say hundred and twenty plus stability. And, or because we've got adaptive suspension now as well. You might be able to explain a bit more about that and just have something that's actually comfortable, like a UK version yeah, that's more comfortable.
2: I actually think that um, if you, I think the UK is is one of the best places in the world to tune a a car. If you can, in the experience I've had, if you can tune a car in the UK and make it cope with the high-speed elements, then it's, it will go anywhere in the world and work. Whereas Mm. the other way around, not necessarily. I've done it before. I remember distinctly when we were doing um, F-Pace SVR. You know, so it's Mm F-Pace SVR. We've been to the the Nürburgring for two weeks, but, you know, we're not tuning on the Nürburgring for the track. We're using the Nürburgring to get bits of information from, which we can talk about, and then you're tuning the dampers in the car on the roads around the Nürburgring and then you're going up and down the Autobahn and you know at the end of 3 weeks everyone's high-fiving we've cracked it this car's amazing and i drove it back to the UK and i remember coming off the channel tunnel and hitting the M20 and i was like what what oh, wow, something's broken i was like what what something I was, you know something in the adaptive suspension has broken whilst we've been on the train what's wrong and you know you get to the point where actually you think no, it's just shit, actually. You're going down the N20 <laughs> and the, and the, and the, the, kind of like suddenly the natural waves of our roads through subsidence yes. or whatever it is, you know, our, you're going down a bumpy British motorway and you're thinking, this is shit. We can't sell this. So we had to stop and retune it again back in the UK and then go back to Germany to make sure it was okay. And it's a hard lesson about where you do the work and, making sure you know exactly where it's going to be signed off, as in, is this good enough to sell? But making sure that actually is something that you know will go out into the marketplace and work everywhere.
0: Yeah, it must be super tricky. Because
2: I like you to, we
0: have some, we don't have the worst roads in the world, but okay, we live here and yeah. we drive cars here and they're pretty loud and bumpy yeah. in comparison to Europe. I think anyone that's ever done any driving in Europe, they'll be driving their car, and they've driven it in the UK all their life, and they get to France or you know somewhere else, Germany, Switzerland, and they're like, "Hang on a minute, this has turned into like a luxury sedan. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. everything is so quiet." Yeah. What's um? What do you pick? Okay, let's let's wind back a little bit. So, who have you worked for? in the dynamics role vehicle dynamics role and how's that journey been
2: i started out from university at uh, Daewoo motor company if you remember them mm-hmm. um so i lucked in and my degree was a sandwich course so i did a year in industry before i finished my degree and i was lucky enough <laughs> to get a place down at Daewoo motor company um in worthing on south coast because they'd bought um a consultancy company called iad and they were setting up like a uk technical center um and i went there to do like a you know your tour around different departments as you do so i arrived saying please put me in vehicle dynamics um and then so i got my stint in vehicle dynamics did my degree and was offered the job back Um, so i went back as a graduate and you were supposed to do like this training program across different departments and learn about different areas of the company. And after three months, they got bored of me, saying, "You know, please just put me in vehicle And they just, so they did. <laughs> um, so I that that's where I started, and I was lucky enough to work with some real experienced people that Dayu had also recruited in from uh, General Motors. So I learned a lot of my kind of grounding in those. Three years, and then the company went effectively uh, bust. And because I saw it coming, I'd always had this um, career in mind. That I thought, well, the pinnacle of Ryan Handling in the UK is Jaguar. So I'd always had in my mind that's where I want to head. Mm. So I, I can't even remember if I applied for a job or if I did just did in a speculative letter. But anyway, I would, I, I got in there. You know, I was offered a job. Come and join Jaguar, the economics. Sweet. So I did. Um, and I worked on X-Type, would you believe, when I arrived. So we had X-Type, and then X-Type, uh, front-wheel drive, and then like a, an S-Type, 2002 model uh, an X-J, and it kind of all just went from there. Um, mm. And then we joined together with Land Rover, when was that, 2004, four, five? I can't remember. Um, Something like that. Yeah, so the engineering teams came together and I went and, went and did um, the original Range Rover Sport um, and... Kind of like it just kind of grew from there, really, and ended up as uh, what was called a technical specialist in vehicle dynamics. Um, And then I ran the uh, for the last three or four years. I ran the SVO team, you know. So we did all the um, specials. So uh, it started with Project Seven, and then we did the SVRs for Range Rover Sport and F Type and F Pace and Project Eight and those sorts of cars.
0: Um, So those must have been. uh... Pretty cool. Well, actually, first of all, how are you? Are you in this process? Are you driving cars a lot, or is it a mix, or are you engineering and then giving people saying go drive that for four thousand hours?
2: It's both, actually. There's, um, I don't know. The, the the only way I've ever known it is that I am an engineer, so my training is engineering, mm. but the job involves driving the car and assessing it and developing it at the same time. So you become the kind of like test driver for want of a better description, but also the engineer. So in, yeah. for the first, you know, six, seven years, I'm driving the car, deciding what it does, deciding what I'd like it to do instead, and then investigating what the solutions might be to change that. And then yeah. going the and I and testing those. And then as you develop through the career and you start to have a team, then I'm doing less of that day-to-day and I'm driving the car more occasionally, but you're having that input into the team to say, this is what I'd like it to do. And if we're struggling to come up with like a a technical reason why it's doing what it does and wants to do something else, then I help and get involved in how we might find the solution um, to the problem, mm. you know, so it's, um, I don't think any car has ever been delivered in the terms by one person. It is never, yeah. it's, it's, it's always a varying size team of people. You know, it's a really collaborative approach because the, the subjects is too big. Um, so someone will always steer it, but actually doing the work and getting involved is always a big team of people.
0: Yeah. And then if, so let's say someone's, that person's steering it and saying, I want the car to fundamentally drive like this. Is that, a, you know, let's say it's Jaguar. Jaguar wants their cars to drive like this, or it's like SVR, SVR cars should drive, have these qualities. Yeah. And then we're trying to get it towards that. Is that, is that sort of how the
2: process works? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So you need to determine at the start before you've even considered making anything What you're trying to actually sell you know who is who is your customer who's going to buy this why are they going to buy it and that's like a good idea yeah (laughs) therefore if you once you've identified the product you're trying to make you then have to find where vehicle dynamics sits within it because um you know attributes as they're known is you know the behavior of the car is only one part of reasons why people buy cars isn't it you know you've got yeah. what it looks like and what the brand means to them and their neighbours, um, how much it costs, residuals, you know. It's fuel coming I mean, so many different reasons why people buy a car other than just attributes, and then vehicle dynamics is only one of those. So you have to yeah. bring all those together. And there's no point in having like a, a car with a an amazingly sporty handling with a diesel engine and <laughs> you know, SUV looks that Trying to appeal to people using it every day and going shopping and doing a school run, you know, you have to, you know, you have to bring those things together to work out what it is that you want the vehicle dynamics to to do. And once you've done that, you try to break that down into how are you going to achieve it because you've got the fundamentals as we talked earlier. Well, how much does it yeah. need to weigh and all those things, and then how do you want the suspension to behave? Um, and you try and do all of that in the virtual world before you've even built a car. Okay. Cause that's the only way that, um, delivery times are so short these days, you know, uh, a program is what, three years, you know, from start to finish from start, we're going to make a car to job one. It's being, it's going down the track It's three years, 20 years ago. It was five years before that it was yeah. seven years, you know, because you're shortening on and you're getting so much more information virtually.
0: When you're, um, you're modelling a car, they, okay, you know how much it weighs and all that sort of stuff, but down to what detail are you um, like building the model? So let's say, for example, the things that I wouldn't necessarily think about, like your interior stuff, you've got just... In term, let's just say we're looking at ride and handling mm-hmm. or modelling, that sort of thing, but you've built up an interior that has weight in all sorts of different places. Is that all modelled in your ride and handling, or you just say, okay, it weighs 400 kilos there, 200 there. How does that work?
2: In in essence, you're trying to um, keep those bits as small as possible because you don't want too much data in the model because it will take weeks Mm. to just churn an answer out. So for things where you know you've got a group of mass and you know where it's going to act, then you kind of lump that together. But you still want the major masses identified. So there will be... A engine model, you know, the engine gearbox and the diff have a significant lump of mass, and also yeah. they're suspended on flexible rubber elements. So the uh, that mass has a significant effect on your vehicle dynamics. So you would model those masses accurately, and also the mounts between body to engine, um, and Seat mass, you probably put the seat mass in, but you don't need any more detail than that, you know. So mm-hmm. the, you're, you're trying to construct that model to accurately represent what the car is going to do within certain constraints just on data size, really.
0: Yeah. And has, presumably that has your ability to model... Because if, if I was like, okay, I'm going to build a model of a car and I would want to be, like, all the information in it, they just be like, yeah, obviously. To get it accurate, I want absolutely every single data point possible. Yeah. Presumably, once the computer capacity and mobility and ability to sort of churn these numbers has changed quite a lot over the last twenty years, but how how much has that changed? And also, like, how close are we to going? Yeah, that is just the car.
2: Um, pretty pretty good, actually. You're right. The you know, over the last 20 years, the accuracy of the model has improved significantly because computing power means you can put more and more detail into it. Um, but the, the, the big but is how do you ask that model whether the car's any good or not? Cause all the model can do, <laughs> yeah. all the model can do is give you some numbers. That's all it can do. It gives you numbers yeah. out. It gives you some graphs numbers metrics however you want to call them and you've got to sit there and decide if those numbers mean it's a good car or not so you can be confident that the numbers are accurate but you yeah. could just think to yourself well these numbers are going to be a good car build that car measure it it's giving all the numbers you asked of it you drive down the road and you think it's shit and that's <laughs> that still exists today so yeah. um, it's still reliant on the people to determine what those numbers should be. And the, that's the bit that we're getting better at, but it's slower than the accuracy itself, if that makes sense. So, you know, because you've, you you you've got to read all... You know, you could get so much data out of a model that you wouldn't know what to do with it, and you could at the start of a program, write down 400 numbers and say, if we achieve these 400 numbers, we're going to get the car we want, deliver them all, and still not like it. So, yeah. you know, that, that's why the bit, once you've made a car, the element of how you tune it is so important, because that's the bit that's going to make the difference.
0: Have you got an example of something that, like, you've learned that, like, this is a good... This is a good thing out of it. I guess that bit we were talking about at the beginning, like the distance to roll centre of suspension and, yeah. and centre of gravity and all that sort of stuff, you know that like, if it trends in this direction, it's probably going to be better.
2: Yeah, yeah. For, there, there are, you know, you get used to looking at metrics for steering and handling and how the car responds. You know, when the, when the driver steers the steering wheel, what happens to the car? What does it do? And you get used to knowing what um, numbers from that objective data metrics give you the car you want. But they're still always in like a a window of if we're in this range, we think we're going to get the car we want. And I think we're still not at the place where we say if we hit this exact number, we're going to get the car we want. Because, you know, the, the, the human has the power to assimilate all of that very, very quickly, into don't like it, do like it. Um, and you can't yeah. get that just from a list of numbers.
0: Yeah. It's, it's what the squishy person behind the wheel thinks. Yeah. Which is, like...
2: Yeah. You know, you can imagine, if, if you think about that, you, you've got all of that issue of do these numbers mean a good car? Well, two different people will want two different things anyway. You know, it's just another yes. added layer of what do we do and it's like i I think this is (laughs) good i think this is bad and someone over there thinks it's someone else you know so 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 you've got that added complexity that as a manufacturer you're trying to make something that's going to appeal to a kind of like wide band of people at the end of the day how
0: how on earth do you pick the center of that line like that line of like who you're pitching it forward And I guess, it does it vary car to car range and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, yeah, for certain. You've got, um, uh, you'll come back to what your brand is about and what your brand means and what the type of people are that buy it. Um, And then you've got variants within that. You know, you've got your sporty cars and your seven-seaters, you know, and, and how you want those to behave will be quite different. But you'll want to kind of make them feel like they're still part of the core brand at the same time. So it's uh it can become kind of difficult, and all the numbers in the world can steer you in a direction, but it's amazing how it still comes back to your subjective feel. You know, you've driven this car, and you think, I, I just feel like it's where it needs to be for the type of car we're making. You know, and it can be very hard to explain sometimes, but that's just how you feel about it, and you know you don't always get that right. But there's no other—I don't—I don't know what other criteria you'd use to make that decision, really.
0: Yeah, and surely it's difficult because design. I guess there's a sort of thing of like designing a car for an engineer, like who you go, yeah, this is what a good car, ticking all these boxes yeah. could be. But does that, like you said, does, it's got a to tie into does it sell cars? Yeah, does you know, just a random person you picked off the street, what do they think? And I'm endlessly surprised by what other people think about about, about yeah. everything. Yeah. You're just like, I don't know how you put up with that. Or or <laughs> yeah. something that infuriates you, they couldn't care less about. Yeah. And something that infuriates them, you couldn't care less about. And that in itself is very, very difficult, I imagine, to try and yeah. Dude, I guess during the process you get the cars get tested by random people and whatever. Yeah.
2: It's, it's, uh, I think it's very easy to fall into the trap where you take an expert's opinion and mm. you decide not to listen to the non non you know, well, uh, I'm a vehicle dynamicist, so I know how this car drives and, you know, so-and-so drove it and they said they don't like this and that, but what do they know? Because they're not a vehicle dynamicist, you know, it's, it's, that's an easy yeah. trap to fall into, um, but you have to listen to them because they might be your actual customer you're not you're not making a car for yourself you're making yeah. you know, yeah. and, and actually it's um i I think that the broader the uh, customer you're going for, the broader the abilities of the car, the harder it is if you go and make a car yeah. that does one thing you make a um a car that's gonna be a sports car that goes around tracks you know. Then the customers of that car will accept a load of compromises, and you can go and focus on one thing. If you're making a car that um, is going to be driven by a massive variety of people and has to do a wide range of roles, from someone driving on their own to the family and seven kids and bikes hanging at the back, you know, like a yeah. like a Discovery, it becomes actually a much tougher job because you've got to balance how these things behave and what they think of it. Um, and, and you really have to listen to what people say. I've, I've done cars where you, I've made like a, a decision around the steering where we wanted it really responsive and quite pointy, you know, and um, hmm. the steering's quite light, it's very direct. And if you drive it in a spirited way down a country road, it was, you know, what I like. And then other people will jump in it and say, "Whoa, I can't get on with this. It's way too responsive and pointy. It makes me yeah. feel nervous. I just don't like it. And, you know, you, it's easy to dismiss them and say, well, you're just a rubbish driver. But actually, they might be who you're trying to sell it to. So you, have sell to guy, yeah. Yeah, so you have to understand that they're not an expert or they just like different things and and make sure you've got that in your sign-off you know, process that you understand who's going to buy it.
0: Yeah, I um, I know a bunch of, well, lots of YouTubers and various people and whatnot, and um, I was chatting to one of them recently, and he gets some flack from people because he's not a particularly good driver, mm. but he knows he's not a good driver. Yeah. And he went on the McLaren 765LT launch, and we were talking about it, and he's like, I don't know why I'm there driving the car. Like, I'm not drifting it or whatever. And I was like, well, actually, think about this. All these people that we look at as like car people to review cars are all exceptional. Most the ones you look, I think most people look up to, are exceptionally skilled, used to driving all sorts of stuff, and you hand them a car and they'll like put it to the limit and whatever. But ninety nine point nine, okay, probably a bit less than that, (laughs) but percent of the people buying the car are exactly like your this influencer or whatever who can't drive very well they've driven some sports cars they've just bought a lamborghini or something and you send them off around a track their experience is going to be much more representative of the general experience of someone driving that car than your lewis hamilton or whatever you know someone driving it and i think it's very easy to just sort of Neg these kind of people and be like, yeah, you can't drive, whatever, blah 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 blah. But like you said, it, their opinion actually, okay, it matters to all of us, and everyone ultimately wants to know what their car can do and how it can drive on the limit. But if you can't drive like that, it's all about the experience, and that's the most important thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I the I think the real trick is to do both. And I'll I single yeah. I single Porsche out in that respect. Porsche have the ability to make the car actually quite approachable in general to the non-expert but then when you really get on it it also delivers everything for the complete expert and i think that's that's something they've done with their brand for for so long and actually is why mm. it's so strong isn't it you know you the the 911 can be bought as a car for anyone to drive to and from work but you know when you put it on a track, even if it's a Carrera, it's going to just handle it. It's going to deal with that track. Yeah. It's going to give you the feedback. It's going to behave exactly as you want it to. And that's, I think that's the foundation that that, ba- that brand is built on. They, they take the time to make sure they're not alienating either group. Um, yeah. And that's, that's it's a really hard balance to make, isn't it? Because I I think um, some of the jankers you have done over the, over the time there's aspects of the kind of steering and response which has been too far to the point where they are satisfying the expert but not but it's right they're satisfying the expert too much and you're alienating the non-expert too much you know there's a there's a different balance to be found in there but what you again what you don't want to do is everyone go and make a Porsche because yeah that's what Porsche do you know (laughs) <laughs> yeah so um everyone, everyone you know in in the sports car world i see porsche is the the brand that's sat there and, de- and has delivered something consistently for so long that people then go well how are we going to be different to porsche so they go and try and yeah. find that space don't they you know um ferrari is outside of that i would say but some of the younger sports car manufacturers they say well we want to make a car that a Porsche customer might buy, but we can't make a Porsche. You've got to make something else. So they focus yeah. on what the something else might be. Um, and it's, you know, I, you can't, it's you tough. can't knock Porsche for doing it. Can you, uh, you know? Um,
0: yeah. And it's, you drive some cars. Like I drive some modern cars. I drive, I drive a 488. And I, I've, I've talked about this far too much in the podcast, but I, I wasn't allowed to put it in race or anything above that. Right. Um, I had a bit of track time and a bit of road time. And for me, it just, it did everything great, but it didn't deliver anything exceptional. And Mm -hmm. I think it was because, for me, I had no fear factor at all in the car, just because in the settings I was driving in, it just masks everything, and it just puts the power down, and you go off. Whereas I've um, recently bought a a, a Ferrari 812, (laughs) gone a bit crazy, and um, that it's just fucking mental. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's, just, it's just bonkers. Like, and yes, you could drive it around in sport. In the wet, you've still got to be careful. but like, And it's fine. And my wife drives it and it's fine. But it's a bit like empirically on paper, it's a bit shit in comparison to a 488 probably yeah. because the steering's really responsive, but it's kind of like a boat. And it's like, everything happens over there and it yeah. weighs loads and it's not got a lot of grip at the back. But that, for me, is quite exciting when you drive it because half throttle can light up the rears in, like, most gears. But that, I think, for a lot of people, does not an enjoyable car make at all. Yeah, yeah. I would not want to drive that. I'm going to end up in a hedge. (laughs) Um, With SVO and the SVR cars, is that right? Yeah. 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 Um, What was the sort of, what's the ethos behind those models? What's the aim with those?
2: The uh, kind of the, the reason for SVO was um, Ralph when he was CEO. He, he he was definitely keen on the JLR version of you know BMW M or AMG for Mercedes. Mm. That's we we you wanted to create the kind of halo performance versions of the JLR products and create a, a sub brand that customers kind of like bought into and wanted to be part of. Um, and it was how you created that through the product. Um, so the, you know, the formula was a kind of like, uh, at the time was, you know, nothing uh, kind of unusual. It was the take a car and put a great big V8 in it and make it, make some great noises and be good fun to drive, um, and look great, you know, so that, that formula was not unique and we were just, you know, trying to have our version of it. In terms of the specifics, so I think that uh, what I always liked about Range Rover Sport SVR and F Pace SVR is that you could argue for both of those cars, the equivalent Porsche Cayenne or McCann, whatever, you know, or they might go and do a faster lap time. And, um, you know, if you definitely if you looked at the BMW X5M, it was like, well, this will, this will go around a track faster. But actually, its job of being an SUV. That's transported people about it was bloody terrible at it you know it would um you've driven it uh, i the the previous model x5m drove me mad well I was like, why why take an suv and <clears throat> try and make it into a sports car it's not it's an suv yeah. you know <laughs> yeah. so what i'm if i wanted to drive a car like that i'd buy a bloody sports car so yeah. and that was the view we had that actually Range Rover Sport and F-Pace SVR had to t- stay true to the fact that they were SUVs and people would be commuting in them and carrying their families around. And, um, you know, Range Rover Sport is the best example of that. When, because it was the first SVR, I remember that kind of like the, the whole business is like, well, how many of these are we going to sell? And well, we might sell a thousand. So it was a year, you know, so it was geared up to let's, let's see if we can sell a thousand a year. And mm-hmm. then you develop the car around those numbers. I think it sold three and a half thousand in its first year and has done three and a half to four thousand every year ever since. And there were times when they had to go and change production parts because the tooling was geared up around a thousand cars. So, you know, oh, we're, okay, we're making yeah. so many, you have to go and change the part and how it's made. So, and the reason that car was such a success, and I think it outsold the KN turbo s and the reason for that is because it hit that sweet spot of being a usable range rover sport that just made a kind of like outrageous noise at times let's say but it it wasn't so worried about going around track as fast as it could it stood for fun and character and being a bit belligerent at the same time you know and that's and um and that's kind of like what the svr cars grew from they had to be kind of the ultimate performance version of R cars, but they weren't trying to be something they're not at the same time. You know, usability and fun and character always remained an important part of all of those cars, even if objectively you could argue that they weren't as good as something else. And I think that the sales figures always were were great. You know, F-Pace, SVR. I remember when we launched F-Pace, SVR, um, the order book just sold out. It just, I think it was 6,000 cars a year sold out, you know, within a few months. And, yeah. and it's, it's because people thought it was a great car that they could live with at the end. And I think that's what made the difference.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of people, a lot of companies seem to have ignored that aspect of it. Like if I'm personally, if I, if I was going to buy an SUV and I also liked royalty engines. You, do, I don't want to buy an SUV that tries to handle like a sports car that mm. is like super stiff, like a X4M or something, X3M, those cars now. They're so solid. You go over a bump and it's like... <coughs> same with like a saloon, a modern saloon car. Like for me, something like an RS6 or an M5 or any of these things, they should be... Very similar to the underlying car, comfy, wafting family car, but with a stupid engine in it. Yeah, and all of that—the things that that entail. Like, you yeah. shouldn't suddenly try and be a completely different car in the range. And so many manufacturers seem to do that, and yeah. it's all like ring lap times or whatever for a car
2: that's three tons. Like, no one cares. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, you're right. I, I, it's like um. It's like they're chasing reasons to make you want a car you don't need, isn't it? It's like um, yeah. uh, you don't really need this car because the one you've got is fine, but we're going to like give it a gazillion horsepowers and it will do lap time of ten seconds faster. There's all these yeah. there's all these reasons why it's better. So please buy this new car, you know. Yeah. Whereas the reality is, you're completely happy with the car you've got at the moment, and um, you know manufacturers have chased that for a long time, which is probably why. Um, you know, so they, they the cars have got faster, bigger, heavier, more power. All these things happen, don't they? Because they're constantly trying to get people to want the the next thing. Um, and it's true, you know, not just for sports cars or you know the RS six or whatever. That you know, I don't know, I don't know the RS six very well at all. But I've watched the evolution of it, and when you see one now, the RS six is massive, isn't it? It's, it's, it's huge. It's a huge estate. Um, with 21 inch or 22 inch wheels or something crazy like that, yeah. and I know someone that had one, and it was like it was. He, I think he sold it because you just plodded around thinking this is an Audi, whatever, and then you could access the ridiculous performance for a couple of seconds, and then you're done. Yeah. So, oh, I don't really need this. You know, it's like you Yeah. It, wh- wh- why do I need this? I don't need this. I'm. I'd be perfectly happy with something that's, you know, cheaper and easier to drive or whatever so i
0: had a really funny experience recently i was i used to have an s4 event um up until a couple of weeks ago and um i drove that all the time really comfy nice whatever and then i went around to a friend's house and they have a golf gti from like two years ago and we they we drove around town a little bit and i was like oh ride quality on this is
2: really good <laughs> really good
0: and got out shit (laughs) (laughs) why are we driving around with like thin sidewalls cars like slightly big wheels just like all this stuff when the reality is like you just want something comfy
2: yeah
0: and it's not comfy like what what am i playing at and i think it's very easy to get sucked into that like yeah rs4 rs6 sort of attitude as a, a manufacturer or whatever and there is absolutely a place for those cars people do like them but I think the majority of people that are buying a fast estate are probably looking for your Range Rover Sport SVR type experience. Of. Yeah, they want the comfy estate with the practicality and whatever, and they want it to be refined. And yeah, they just want a stupid engine. Yeah, they just want it to be like kind of stupid and sound yeah. good. Yeah. It doesn't have to be fast; it just needs
2: to sound good. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and that's an interesting one. It, it's true, isn't it? I think across many. Many parts of the industry, really. Um, I remember seven, eight years ago now, I um, was working with John Barker for a while, you know, who um, yeah. came from Evo. And we, we sat down and said, we should do like a campaign for good ride. You know, wh- whatever happened to good riding cars? Where have they gone? Why, yeah. why, why do you jump in an old car and go, wow, this car rides really nicely. <laughs> and you get back in your modern car, and think, well, this is shit, and you somehow put up with it. You know what? what yeah. So, the, the reasons why cars have changed can be quite complex because it's not only customer attitudes, but also the brand experience or the trying to get them to buy something else. But also, yeah. cars are heavier and faster than they ever were, so you have to deal with that at the same time. And they, um, there are benefits. So, if you were to avoid someone that pulled out in front of you, you're miles more likely to yeah. do that in a modern car than you were in an old car. So there's all these reasons why it's changed, but it's but it's that. Does it have to be like that? Can can? And I think cars turned the corner a few years ago where they they're now getting a bit comfier because yes. I, I I think the manufacturers have realised that the the usage kind of profile of cars these days has changed so much because. Um, roads are congested. You can't use all the performance all the time. You're just people are just going places, and they're becoming. I think that the customers are driving that need for more refinement and more comfort. And uh, I read about the Taycan and how well it rides. Not experienced it, oh, but so good. But, but it's a good example of actually. Well, they realised that that car. They're, they're trying to sell it as a sports car, I think, or something, you know, it's a sports TV, yeah. but they've realised that the reality of that car is it needs to be comfortable, otherwise it would just annoy you and you wouldn't, you'd have a, why do I need this car? You know, so yeah. that, and that's, that's, you know, I think that's people getting sense of they don't need to have crap ride, but also a sports car doesn't need to ride bad anyway. I think there's a perception that people want sporty cars, therefore sporty cars have firm ride, therefore have firm ride, Ergo, it's a sporty car, you know, and it's, yeah. uh, it becomes catch-22, you know, you can, well, funny enough, Alpine A110, you know, <laughs> it's, um, that car, for me, is just kind of like, is like a, a stop, and a little reset of, you don't need to do that, you could do this instead, and, um, and, and that is, you know, it doesn't need to beat you up, it can be absolutely quiet, refined, relaxed, comfortable, do all those things, but still be, capable and have you know tons of fun and i think that it, over time the the ride will just get better and better from from now on that's my kind of hope probably i hope so because <laughs> um, i i think people like us will drive it but then the general public will too you know they'll drive their cars that they're not that interested in but they'll go well this is comfy you know and they'll like yeah. it won't they so
0: yeah absolutely the of the, all the cars I've driven recently, the Taycan stood out for the way it just dealt with a road. Not in like a performance way, just it was comfy and it just dealt with bumps and everything and the body control, all of it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? And I, I, I don't know why. Like, I think it just, it was all of the things. But you get in that car and you get out and you go, hang on a minute. I've driven a lot of cars of a similar ilk recently that don't do that anywhere near as well as that car. And I, I wonder, is, is part of it the electric part of it in terms of the way the layout of the car is? Having all that weight down low, does that help with these things or not? It's just a direction.
2: No, it definitely does. And I think that not all of them... I don't think it's been fully realised yet. I think Porsche... uh, I don't know enough about the technicalities. So Mm. um, one of my uh, jumping on a soapbox things is big anti-roll bars because as cars have got faster and faster, there's been this trend that people don't like a car that rolls in corners. Yeah. So uh, a car having a car rolling is bad has been this perception at the same time, cars have got taller and taller, you know, so, um, your people are used to driving SUVs around and they don't roll very much. And the reason they don't roll very much is because they've got pieces of scaffold for anti-roll bars. Um, but what that does is that it, it stops being a independent suspension because you've got so much transfer of load, All the time, whether it's just you know, you're going down a bumpy road, you don't go around down roads where the bumps hit both wheels, you know, left and right at the same time. It's always one wheel, then the other wheel, then the other wheel, then the other wheel. So that roll bar is constantly putting torque into the body. So you drive a, a sporting SUV down the road, and you're if you look at the windscreen, you're and you pick a spot on the windscreen. Your your head is just rocking side to side all the time, trying to yeah. keep your head still. Um, and it's the roll bar that's just rocking the car all the time. And you the way you stop that rocking motion is just up the damping. You just put more damping in to damp <laughs> out that rock motion. But then you've got a firm car for just general up and down bumps, you know. So, and if you actually wind the clock back to older cars, uh, they all roll more. All of them. They've all got smaller roll bars on them. And your, it immediately unlocks that compromise of um, how much damping does it need to control the body in certain situations. And an electric car, because it's got all the weight low down, it doesn't need big roll bars to achieve the same roll angle. Yeah. So your electric car rolls less compared to an engine car. Therefore, you can fit smaller roll bars. So that will start to unlock a ride benefit from an ev i suspect that tycan's got clever roll bars as well has it in certain models i or don't not? know it probably don't does it, i don't know so so but either way i almost they've almost certainly tried to unlock that compromise where the you know i've seen a tycan on the road and they are really low aren't they they are they're a low yeah. car and they've got batteries in the floor so its csg is going to be really really low so they're there i'm i'm pretty sure they were going to have taken that benefit and they can start to tune the suspension around it. And I think that when you, when you do your first EV, the um, back to that kind of like, what do you use data? What do you use feeling? The data will say you can fit a really small roll bar to this car and your feeling will be, oh, 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 that makes me nervous because I'm not used to doing that. Yeah. Because I'm not used to doing that. I'm going to kind of like hedge my bets. And and put a roll bar on it. It is a bit smaller, but it's not as small as it maybe could be. And I think the manufacturers kind of will inch their way towards it. So I think that as we do more and more EVs, the ride will just get better and better.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Uh, it's it's sort of turning that tide, isn't it, on where these things be going? Because we previously we've been. Cars have been getting more and more stuff. Like you said, like thicker anti-roll bars. Or if it's a Bentley, they've got some kind of motors to stop it to handle the mass. But the motors must—they weigh the system weighs like 200 kilos. Yeah, and it's like yeah, and it delivers completely flat. It's like okay, but surely if you go down that route and you just go the other direction, well, you end up with something like the A110. Let's let's talk about Life One Ten. Where did this come from? What do you do? Well,
2: two years ago, when is it? Yeah, so just over two years ago, I'd had that. um, I actually decided I'd had enough of corporate life anyway. Mm. So I kind of like left and thought, what am I going to do with myself? And um, I bought the Alpine A110 before I'd left because of what it was. So I've always been into sports cars, you know, as me. Um, I had an M3 CSL and then uh, before I had the A110 I had a 997 GT3 so I, I was always into that nice. I'd always had a car mm. and but the Alpine A110 came along and I must admit it completely passed me by even though I knew Alpine as a brand because my dad always wanted the, the GTA and so on and uh, I had the same trap where it was, well this car's come along with a 1.84 cylinder and it's not got a lot of power and it's quite small and um I was like, okay, you know, so, so having, not knowing anything about it, it kind of passed me by. And, uh, I remember someone saying to me, um, uh, a reviewer had re- reviewed it and he, um, he kind of said, Oh, have you driven the A110? And I was like, no, not really. And he goes, Oh, well, I had one in, I thought it was amazing. I weighed it and it was 1100 kilos. And I was like, what? You know, I was like, what? You know, because <laughs> we were doing, we'd just done project eight and yeah,
0: you
2: know, a project eight. With all its lightweight parts on it, um, a good one weighs seventeen fifty kilo curb weight, and uh, and I was weighing Porsche 911s. We had a turbo in that was sixteen fifty kilos. You know, Porsche turbos are not light anymore. Um, My GT three was fourteen thirty five kilos, and I had a K and R that was thirteen fifty kilos. So you know, so and then something it weighs eleven hundred kilos. That what you know that is a modern sports car brand new that weighs 1100 kilos that's like that's that's un, how that how have they done that and it was um, a moment of hooked I was like well have they done that then I got into the car and I started to read about it then all the reviews came out and I just thought hang on a minute that this is something different and there was a, a a part of wanting something different and wanting to know how they'd done it I just yeah it kind of like, uh, became one of those things. I just have to, I have to get into this. So I bought one and I bought a secondhand premier edition with a thousand miles on it. And, um, I bought it privately and the guy was like, you're, you're going to come and drive it. And I said, no, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm buying it regardless. I, the first time I drove it was when I drove it away having bought it. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, uh, cause I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to buy it anyway, you know, and, it's not going to be rubbish, because yep. I've read the. It's, 1, kilos. it's not going to be rubbish, so I bought it, and um, uh, I must have got halfway home, and I'm thinking, oh, I think I could probably just tweak the steering a little bit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, the, the mind switches on, and it's yeah. like you, you know, because of my background, I just entered into, you know, you. It's hard sometimes to switch from assessing to enjoying. So mm. you're like, oh, I've just bought this car. It's my car and it makes a great noise. And I was feeling, oh, I could just make the steering a bit better. Or I'd prefer it if it did that, you know, and it's just like, just, hang on a minute, just just understand it and enjoy it. Um, and that's what, that's that kind of like started that journey. And um, what I always found the most, what I still find the most remarkable thing about it is that, it weighs 1100 kilos yet i'd happily drive it to the south of france you know it's quiet it's the wind noise and road noise is good i find the seats comfortable you know that in general the ride's very good its primary ride is great you know it has some secondary ride nobilities because it's a sports car in the, the day but you know and it does all of that Yet it weighs 1,100 kilos and you get the benefit of 1,100 kilos the first time you steer into a corner. Sometimes I don't drive it for like a couple of weeks and we had my um, other half as an ipace, So we've got mm. European car the year 2019. You know, we've got an ipace and an Alpine A110. <laughs> and before that, we had a Range Rover Velar and I would drive the Velar for two weeks and jump in the A110 that I'd owned for a year and I, I'd, I'd go "What? Whoa! what is, you know, you think it, what is this? You know, I, it, you, the way it kind of like just late leaps into a corner, but not in a kind of like, um, kind of scary way. It just, it, it just moves. And the way it moves down the road was so different. And the mass is such a game changer. Yeah. That, um, it's a car I've owned for over two years now. And uh, it's, the, it's the best car I've ever owned in that regard. I, I, I don't think I've um, – yes, of course, I'm tuning it and I've changed it and I've personalised it to me but at the same time created products that I think improve the car and yeah. people want to buy. But I'd, 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 I've never owned one of my cars where I've had the same feeling about it after two years that I have about that car. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I think that uh, I went for a drive with some friends the other day, and one of them had just come out of a Boxster GTS, you know, the GTS four litre. Yeah. And he was saying that the, the four litre, whilst it's a great car, the gearing was so long that if you just drive it around in the UK, it was so accomplished. It was slightly, it was weirdly boring, was his description of it whereas the A110's got character immediately, you know, just going to the shops or just going around town yeah. or going on a journey, it, and you're not going very fast, and, and the character's there straight away. And I think that's the, the great trick of it, is that it makes you feel connected and you're having fun all the time, and it doesn't piss you off either.
0: Yeah, it's I, that thing, like you said, you, you get in it. And I had... Um, and let me one for a week. And I got in it, and that it's it's weird. It's weird. Like I said, turn out of the drive. It's so like first corner at hmm. four miles an hour or something like, hmm. hmm, And then the next corner is at like 25 miles an hour. You're like, hmm, this is different. Something yeah. like, this is fundamentally different, the fact it weighs what it weighs. Yeah. And, it- and all the stuff and whatever. The, I wasn't, I wasn't super impressed with the ride mm-hmm. of the car I drove. I it's, I I don't know whether it was like it was decent, but I didn't. I think I'd heard so much about it before I drove it. Everyone's like, "It's amazing! It's got the best ride. It just flows down the road." And I'm going down the road, and it's like, bum, bum,
1: bum, 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 bum. It's not
0: flowing that much, right? Like, and then okay, you get up to fifty. 60 sort of miles an hour and then it started to come together but low yeah. speed it was still very much sports car like dun, yeah. dun, as you cruise around um so what what have been the things that you have what have you changed um, products have you made and and,
2: and why i was probably just best to describe that journey through it I, the first thing i changed was the geometry which is like um no part change it's just adjustable because i felt the car it wanders around. So uh, take a standard car and I feel that the kind of immediacy of the steering from straight ahead could be better for, especially for something so light. So it has this kind of like little dead patch around center
1: yeah. and
2: then it speeds up. And also it's crosswind stability or it's motorway cruising stability is standard is pretty rubbish, quite honestly. So when I first drove it, I you know and I hit the M, uh, three I think it was heading towards the N twenty five and the and it was a bit blustery and I'm thinking, what's going on? You know, the car it's easy to just assume that because it's so light it's gonna get blown around by a crosswind and and that's that. And, yeah. and my and I was just like, well it shouldn't be as bad as this. So uh, th- that was the first kind of like investigation of understanding the chassis underneath. So I, I didn't just go and change it. I spent some time underneath it to look around and uh, learn about it and understand it. Um and I then got in touch with some people that had actually worked on it um, because of contacts and understood that this bit was adjustable and that was adjustable. And what I learned was that the kind of like from a pure geometry point of view, the car is engineered with a ton of adjustment built into it. So you, the the range of camera adjustment is enormous out of the factory, but at both mm. axles, and not only that, the the settings on the car were at the extreme end um, anyway. So there was so much potential to do something. So I I looked at the numbers and thought, they don't make sense to me, as in the the values of the geometry is not what I would have used, to put it that way. And I I can't explain why they were used now. Um, My best uh, kind of like description is that they're very hot hatch, front-wheel drive-style settings And I don't know if that's where they've come from, from a Renault Sport point of view, can't answer it. So I decided I would apply what I know. I thought, well, I know real drive cars, so I'm going to do what I know because the car can adjust it. So I did that a few times and just kind of lifted the steering where I wanted it, and all of the crosswind stability was so much better. And to this day, I think my geometry settings have been downloaded over 300-odd times, and I still get, People saying, "Oh, I've put your geometry on my car, <laughs> yeah. and it's so much better." Why did they do that at the factory? You know, I, 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 I don't know. Um, so that, that's, but it's it's been a great lead-in because if you, uh, I've always believed that in the world of geometry, you know, when um, I've seen companies where they go, "Oh, we've uh, applied our." fast road settings and you go great. And you go, well, what are they? Oh, well, they're secret. Cause they're, you know, they're fast road settings, <laughs> but they're deadly secret. I don't, I, I don't buy into that. You know, it's like, these are the geometry settings. There you go. And I just publish them and tell yeah. people, you know, and so people all around the world, they take my settings and they go to their good alignment place and they tweak the car. So that was, that was step one. And, um, I also thought to myself, do you know what? The ride height looks a bit high. Wheel-art gaps are a bit on the big side. Wheels are a bit inboard, and I have that. It just feels a bit... It looks a bit dainty um, yeah. from a pure design perspective. And Also, the car was pretty soft, and it's... How to describe this? If you go deep into a corner and feel like you need to brake or you need to lift off because something's happened, then it's pretty marginal in that situation as yeah. in it will you know some people can describe it as playful my <laughs> my manufacturer head describes it as marginal acceptable You've, you know it, it's <laughs> um you know the days of the 205 gti are long gone you know yeah. it's, it's great that they did you know whatever you do don't lift off mid-corner um it's great that they did that but Driving these days is a bit different. So I I had this feeling that part of that was because when you, in a standard car, when you brake really hard, um, it pitches an awful amount, as in the front dive uh, and the rear lifts up. So I started trying to understand why this was, and I measured the suspension, I measured wheel rates and wheel travels, and I found that the the rates are fairly soft. But also um, it's got tons of bump travel as well. I remember the first time I drove it on some of the test roads near where I live, which I've you know, done hundreds of miles around with JLR products. And there's a few demanding sections. And I drove over one section at like 60 mile an hour as I normally would. And it, it just kind of like ignored it. It just like went over these bumps and went just like across the top. And I was like, what happened there? You know? Um, so I went back and did it a bit faster and thought, well, this is different. This is not, it's not because the car's light. It's, there's the suspensions tuned in such a way that it can just deal with these bumps in a way that a lot of other cars can't. And what I learned through measuring is that the reason for that is because it's got so much bump travel. It's almost got rally car style travels, kind of linear travels. Um, So what I thought, well, actually what I wanted to do was to make the car pitch less, make it a bit more stable in cornering make kind of in, increases kind of that sportiness. And the fact that it's got so much bump travel means that I'm free to lower the ride height without consequence at the same time. Okay. So I, I back had developed their own pro kit. So I back gave me a pro kit So there you go, have that first one, first one off the, um, off the shelf. And I decided that it lowered the car too much and the spring rates wasn't as good as I wanted them to be. So I thought, oh, I'm just going to do my own thing. So I went and then I used the uh, off-the-shelf motorsport springs to come up with the rates I wanted and get an exact ride height um, and then thought, oh, hang on a minute, do, do, do other people want this as well? And it turned into discussions with IBAC and said, well, what if we take the kit you've developed but use that as a basis to develop something entirely new that I want that's my specs mm-hmm. and the kind of like launch from there so I I had to commit to 25 kits so it's the first yeah. time I thought well this is something this is suddenly serious this is not me hobbying around making my own car this is me suddenly saying well actually I've got to now spend some money and then try to recoup it by selling yeah. it. I'd started like a social media experiment as I called it in my mind I thought well because the car's unique and no one, not many people got one. What, what would, what would it be like if I was to have, um, an Instagram account that was just about owning the car and, yeah, you know, enjoying it. So I'd, when I bought it, I'd named that Alpine underscore life 110 because yeah. it was about my life with a 110. And because I'd got a following already any, because of that, I thought it, it just happened to be the name that was already associated with me and the car. Yeah. So I decided I would sell the springs under the banner of Life 110. Um, mm. And that's, that's kind of like, that's where it started from. I've been surprised ever since with how much people connect with what I'm trying to do with the car, yeah. you know. Because um, I, I, I've since followed the philosophy that the car is the star. You know, it's about making the A110 as good as it can be. In every way, yeah. you know, small improvements here and there that I think make the car better, that improve it for a reason, X, Y, Z. That's why I'm doing it. And that's what kind of like has been the foundation of what Life 110 now stands for. But that's where it started is with the springs.
0: Nice. The I, I had a question kind of from, from miles back on um, when you were talking about the ge- geometry. Hmm. You said, okay, so the steering has stock it has a bit of a dead zone so how did does changing geometry change that are you changing like toe out toe in or something how, yeah so how, what are you changing to to give more feel in that middle bit
2: um it's toe and camber at both axles so um right the car i guess you understand camber which is the amount the wheels lean in at the top yeah. so if you want the car to develop more grip you put more camber on it and road cars generally in a have yeah yeah in a, so go around a corner if the wheel because the car rolls if you lean the tire in the tire will be more upright to the road and it will give more grip yeah. so more camber equals more grip but also um, more camber can equal more um, response because the tire wants to develop grip straight away so that's one aspect is that the car has almost no camber on the front axle as standard the wheels are Almost upright, right. um, and it has less camber than all of its competitors, less camber than I would generally put on it myself. So, step one was to give it more camber just to kind of switch the tyres on faster. And the second step was the, the toe value, so it had lots and lots of toe out on the front axle and lots and lots of toe in on the rear axle. On a racing car, you might well run toe out on the front axle because. You want the inside wheel to kind of like turn the response on before the car then leans and all the load moves to the outside wheel. So tow out on the race car, you can run, and it will give better turn at high G. Toe in on the rear axle makes the car want to go straight. And if you have lots of tow-in, you have to overcome that before the car wants to turn. So you get a resistance, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, equal- but equally it means that the car might want to go straight. So I imagine there was like a little bit of a a do-loop where they've gone, well, it's got a lot of toe out on the front axle because we want that. Oh, but that makes the car a bit iffy in certain situations, so we'll counteract that by putting a lot of toe on the rear axle. I always think balance is a key word in the vehicle dynamics world because if you get all of your behaviour from one thing, it's never in balance. Or if you've Hmm. made you've done something not so good on one part and you've tried to counteract that while doing something on another part, you'll yeah. always, always end up chasing yourself around and it won't quite work in certain situations. So the, the kind of like uh, um, that marginal, the cycling marginal gains terms of small amounts of improvement everywhere to get everything in balance, mm. um, you'll get a better car. So I, the first thing I did was take the toe out off the front axle which fixed a lot of the wandering at high speed because it means that the car's not searching ruts and everything at high speed and then take the toe in off of the rear axle and it makes the turn-in phase so much more natural at the same time. So that's where the geometry came from. If you take steering, you know when you get to a corner and you steer the wheel and what happens thereafter, the actual steering components, I don't know, contribute about 20% of that? And the rest is down to a balance of the front axle and rear axle. So you can spend, you know, you can spend a long time tuning rear axle geometry and stiffnesses and all those sorts of things. And all you're doing is improving the way the car steers into a corner, you know, and and that's where you get all those balances from.
0: Yeah, I've started to notice that more doing, well, doing some racing, more track driving and starting to sort of, starting to try and understand suspension tuning and stuff and you're like oh the car does this and they're like okay we're going to change this on the back you're like what
2: what why would you
0: do that like yeah 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 no it's all about that balance like you said of either take a bit from the front add a bit to the front take a bit from the rear
2: yeah
0: and they all have different different effects okay that's quite interesting
2: have you done any other bits for the car from the springs i um wanted to do um wheels Mainly for my well, a lot of that was for myself. I wanted a slightly wider wheel, and then I moved to the A110s tires, which is a slightly bigger size, and um, start to sell the rear spoiler from the Cup and the GT4 race cars. So I sourced that as well because mm. it looks really good on the back, but actually it does it does work. You know, it's not a it's not a just an aesthetic piece. It's yeah. um, the race team sent me the CFD work that they'd done on the rear spoiler for the Cup race cars. And said, "Whatever you do, don't ever publish this," um, which I haven't. But, but but it's you know it's the it's the proof that 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 spoiler genuinely is effective. Um, and I tested it with and without it, Cadwell, and it helps the car under braking. Um, so once I've done that, um, I've done improvements to the brakes. So uh, I would I would criticize the brakes on the car for something so light. Uh, they. The brakes don't cope with track use in standard form very well at all. I would you know, mention Porsche again. If you take a 911 Carrera road car, go on a track, the brakes tend to hold up to it. The A110 brakes aren't happy earlier. Um, yeah. And, you know, a Porsche isn't a full track brake go around all day unless you buy a, a GT car, but they do cope with it better. So um, improve the brakes, with different pads and brake lines. And then I've done a... Um, Paddle shifters inside that 's the big big seller actually because the the standard paddles are column mounted but they 're borrowed off for of clio they 're just a bit small and a bit far away they're just i don 't know I wanted that engagement a bit better and a bit easier to to yeah. access um, and actually it's, it's really interesting having done the paddle shifters you know when people talk about the engagement of a, a manual gearbox um, yeah. you get you get better engagement with the car because of the paddle shifter quality. You know, you're changing gear okay, yeah. yourself and how easy it is and how natural it feels improves your engagement with when you decide to sh- change gear. You know, yeah. so it's, you know, it's, um, I, I know you're big into your manuals, but it still makes a difference. I and get actually, that, totally. Yeah, yeah, and actually I think that's, I think especially so on the A110 because the gearing is so short, they've totally shunned not to 60 times. You know, when you do an auto 60 test, it's in the high, it's in high revs in third gear uh, 60, yeah, yeah. you know, so it's a seven speed, but the gear in short, you know, so it changes gear a lot. And I think that's what gives gearbox engagement into the car, even though it's, um, you know, flappy paddle for one of a better description.
0: Yeah. And uh, like paddle quality. Like you said, it makes a huge difference. If you're pulling something that has like a nice positive like click and also feels solid, yeah. There's nothing worse. I every now and then I get a rental car or something, and I'll I'll be pressing one of the pedals on the floor, and it will bend. Yeah, <laughs> like pressing the throttle or something, and then you'll push it a certain amount, and then it'll just start to bow under. You're like, what on earth is this rubbish? And you get the same thing with paddles. Like, yeah. if the paddles are a bit like iffy and a bit plasticky you don't feel like you've got a you know that solid yeah connection yeah. with it yeah it makes quite a big difference and i actually think carbon paddles aren't necessarily that good for that because they are quite they're still Yeah, they're quite quite
2: they're, yeah they can be quite flimsy can't they um and how much weight are you saving you know yeah. uh <laughs> yeah. it's like my um my paddles are Billet machine from aluminium, you know, CNC machine aluminium. So it's like a you know an eighty gram part for a paddle yeah. shifter. And if you make a carbon fibre version, you might be forty grams, but you still save, you've still saved eighty grams on the whole car, you know. Yeah. Um. So whilst weight saving is all of these little things added up, I still think carbon shifters are very much done because they're carbon
1: and people yeah go, they look. Oh, they're carbon yeah. fibre.
2: Look at that! You know they must be awesome, but it's not necessarily the best thing from a pure functional point of view.
0: Totally. Have you um, boosted the power on your car?
2: Yes, I missed that off. <laughs> it's good job of you're <laughs> you here. Um, yeah, so the uh, um, I'm up at 300 ps. The engine um, is effectively like derated. Is for want of a better description. You know, the it's What's the that? same um, 1.8 turbo from the RS Megane. Which Mm. Renault themselves sell at 300 PS. And it's 252 in a standard A110. But the reason for that is the the gearbox torque. So there's lots of discussion around because they've, because of the lightweight obsession, it's got a small gearbox. Um, So the torque capacity of that gearbox is kind of often discussed as to what it is. Now they rate it at 320 newton metres, which is a pretty low figure. The kind of my experience with working in the manufacturers of how cautious they are with limits, you know, where they're testing for abuse cases where um, I've seen this before. Where well, we need to test it so that every morning uh, the customer gets outside and does a launch control start on Belgium pave. And then they drive to work, you know, on full throttle from, yeah. from, from cold, you know, and, and they have to do that for 150,000 miles. You know, it, it's, it, yeah. it, it's some of these things where the reason I bring that up, because it's, I remember those sorts of discussions on project eight, where it's like, oh, well, you know, the engineering standard says this. And it's like, do you really think a project eight customer is going to do that? And so, you know, companies have experience with, well, that's actually not going to happen, isn't it? When I, I know um, yeah. it says in the manual that the, um, a one ten is rated to fifteen hundred launch control starts lifetime, and okay. um, it's not a lot. But it, it's quite a lot. It, it is quite a lot because when you actually add it up, it's like, well, that means I can do uh, like three or four launch con- control starts every Sunday for the next ten years. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. yeah. Um, so actually, it becomes a big number, doesn't it? And um, so I, I was like, well, you know, you got to understand why the talk rating exists and coupled with the fact that because the engine's so tunable there's lots of people all over europe that have tuned a lot of torque and power out of the car a more torque than i have and that i've not heard of any gearbox issues anywhere so i decided i wanted to go for like a, a 380 newton meter position where um i felt that the gearbox was going to be comfortable but also it was enough of a shift to make it worthwhile mm. and um it's really noticeable actually if you if you, you know the there's lots of hot hatches out there with more torque out of a similar sized engine but they don't weigh 1100 kilos so yeah um, similarly if you put too much torque into it then it would just dominate the driving experience at the same time because um it's so light that the rear wheels wouldn't be able to cope with it and i didn't want that yeah. either so I went for this balanced point where 380 newton meters, 300 ps, and it makes a quite noticeable difference to the way the car kind of gets out of roundabouts and those sorts of things.
0: Cool. Sounds like a good. Sounds like a good upgrade. I, I felt when I drove it, just like from kind of low speed, whatever, <clears throat> out of a corner and whatever. I felt like it could do with a bit more. Yeah. Like a bit more torque. Just because yep. it was just it was just so composed the entire time even when you're kind of being an idiot but no, yes okay well that sounds like a good good bunch of good bunch of upgrades
2: yes yeah, so uh, the, and it went um that's the the package i gave to um evo magazine when was that now you know like um must have been a year ago i guess mm. and um you know they asked me for the car because they followed what i'd done and that kind of package went to evo and they absolutely loved it and got a you know, five-star rating nice. in Evo, which is, it's, it's like, um, it's Dreamworld, isn't it, really? You know, if, if yeah. the I remember um, doing the Project 8, I remember one of one of the team, when um, Project 8 first appeared in Evo from the launch in Porto Mayo, and they gave it five stars, and one of the team was like, you know, he's, his career has been li- waiting for the point where a car he's worked on has got five stars in Evo, <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's true. Um, to then effectively you know i i it's a, a modified a 110 so i'm not trying to say that if it wasn't for me the car wouldn't have got the rating but you know yeah. to put to put my version in and get a five star review it's one of those you know pinch me moments so um yeah that's cool it's, it's been um been great ever since really
0: yeah no that's really cool project eight actually I've ever since the sort of inception of that car looked at it and gone like I what the hell is this like why why are you making this car why is it doing Nürburgring laps like yeah. what is the point but as time goes on I I I think it's a very cool thing I think it's very especially cool without the wing
2: it's uh when we did that the kind of SVO head head chief at the time was like we want to make a halo performance car that would deliver X amount of performance. And, um, we were like, well, do you know what? Um, XC is better as a platform for doing that than F-Type. Because F-Type's on an old platform, you know, Hmm. it just is. And they're like, well, but it's a four-door saloon. I was like, yeah, but you know, so this is what you want. And if you want that, (laughs) a four-door saloon is going to give you more of that. So you can imagine the, well, that's a bit weird conversation, you know what? (laughs) And then, and, um, and then it, it went, it turned around to well, actually, instead of well, this is a bit crazy. Why would we do that? It became this is a bit crazy. Let's definitely do that. And it became one of those things where people say, "Well, you know, if you wanted to do this level of performance, what do you need?" And I'll be going, "Well, oh, we spent a long time saying well, it needs: all of this suspension, it needs this hardware. We need to change these parts. It needs that. I want these tires and wheel widths and like you know, and all of and Well, none of that fits. And I said, "Yeah, but you, this is what you said you want." So, and there was like, "Okay, yeah, we'll do it." You you think, oh, you know, because I'm used to people, when you say, oh, we need all this stuff to make a good car, and then, oh, you can't have that, that's a bit hard. And then they go, yeah, okay, let's do that. And you're like, oh. So it became one of those types of projects where the concept was a bit mad and the delivery of it was pretty fraught and amazing all at the same time. And um, as you say, I think that people understand it or maybe they've even got used to it more now than when it first was kind yeah. of revealed. You know, that reveal, um, we revealed it at Goodwood and I was lucky enough to be driving it when it was at the Festival of Speed. Nice. And, it, and there was the buzz of like, what's this? this is, why have you done this? You know, and you're, you're trying to say, well, it's mad, isn't it? And they go, yeah, and, they go, and that's why we did it, because it's a bit mad. So, um, <laughs> you know, got people talking.
0: Yeah, definitely. When it came out, it was like, it's a Jaguar XE that's whatever it was, 180 grand or something. And you just at it and you're like, what? 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 Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to buy that? But then now, like now, I look back, at, I look at it and go, that's really cool though. Like, yeah, that's a cool thing that is.
2: Um, yeah, I'll, because i be, so mad. I'll be interested to see how Alpha get on with the GTA, GTA thing though. Yeah. Know? Because. Uh, I do wonder if that car exists because project eight exists mm. and they've what they, have they said 500 cars that they're going to sell? Which I, I, I looked at that <laughs> and thought, good luck with that, you know, <laughs> because of what it is, as you say, it's still, no matter, it's still very, very, very niche to sell a 150,000 pound four door nutter car, isn't it? You know?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think the, with the Project Eight, everybody looked at the Project Eight and went, "Okay, well, this is quite different to the the cars it's based on." Like, you yeah, know, it, it, it's it's quite extreme. <clears throat> the the Alpha, you go, mm, they've put some bits on the previous model and a whopping price. I hear it's very good to drive. Everyone that's driven it says it's great, but it's just so expensive, and you just want you do wonder, you're like. Yeah. How many and, people are going to buy these things rather than yeah, I, you know, I, whatever Titan or something.
2: I didn't realize that the, until recently that the GTA didn't have the same kind of content level that project Eight did, you know, as, as you just said. So, um, project eight was never done as like a, a, a profit making project. It was like mm. a brand project. And as the, the, the content change in it is just unbelievable. Uh, you you take the front suspension I think there's one part of the metal arm on the lower front which is the same you know that's it and then the rear suspension has got a few more suspension arms which are shared but all the bushes and the frame and everything else is different because we went through and said this is what we need to deliver the performance that we targeted yeah so we changed it you know and I think that the level of bespoke change in that car is just massive. It, it's just huge. So it costs what it costs just to make it exist at the yeah. end of the day. And then, you, and then you hope you've done enough that people buy into why you've done it and want to buy one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that, that, does, that does make it more special when you look back. You go, like the uh, GR Yaris at the moment, Yeah, they, they changed most of the car. To make that car and therefore people look at it and go
2: hmm it's yeah. quite cool yeah and, it's, and it's, it's it's um it's been successful because people like the fact that they've done it for those reasons mm. and it's really quite affordable isn't it actually
0: yeah what's the future of life 110 are you gonna are you gonna do a
2: different car i've kind of evolved to this place mm. r- rather than having necessarily a a business strategy that says I'm going to be here. So yeah. I now need to do that part. So I'm looking at Alpine, <clears throat> what they're doing, because I'm now, so I sell to every market worldwide where the A110 is sold. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's been fantastic from that perspective, because I've had a lot of people help me that they where they wanted to, to make me understand what a brand was and, why people buy into it, and why they might buy your products, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. So, and I've been able to capture sales across the world. So everyone knows. A lot of owners of A110 know about me and Life110. So mm. I've got a good Alpine association. But Alpine are doing EVs from now on. Yeah. So, so I have spent um, x amount of time understanding what EV tuning might look like in the future. And, yeah. um, so I, I have that association, which I think will continue, but I don't, I can't sit here and say what it would look like in yeah. the A1, the A110, um, we can only guess how many years they're going to sell it for because, um, you know, there's EU seven emissions regulations coming, which will probably kill it and yeah. they're twenty, 20 aren't they? So, you know, maximum four years or five years. So I'm thinking, well, if I've established Life 110 as a brand and what does it stand for, and what else would be associated with it, then I'm going to look outside of Alpine to think where that same connection can be made yeah. and where it doesn't uh, kind of like upset the association I've got with Alpine right now. So I don't know what the answer would be, but that's that's that plan. That's what I need to look for.
0: Yeah, yeah. I would say as like an outsider that knows a little bit about what you do and whatnot, it's about making cars handle a bit better, drive a bit better, just tweak them for those sorts of things, possibly angled at, driver-focused, lightweight cars, but they're not necessarily. But more about, I'd say your brand is more about making, you know, tweaking and honing how you like a car, which is empirically in theory better, or you know down that avenue of drive more driver focused and tweaking things and stuff and i totally think you could apply that to anything like well not anything not i don't know a boat but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but just other other cars that fit into that
2: yeah it's going to be the totally like i'm very much into functional gains you know i i don't like to sell shiny parts for the sake of it you know, mm. I want to actually have some kind of functional improvement and reason for doing it. That's what I like to continue because that's what interests me. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, that's what makes me excited. And you, you've got to bring that passion into your own company. haven't you? You know, if if you you got to really believe in what you're doing to make the yeah. difference. Um, and that's definitely been the case um, to date with the A110. So I want to make sure I captured that same kind of passion as i expand going forward
0: yeah yeah yeah. well one of the five questions might help oh okay see where this is going to go let's let's do the <laughs> let's do your five questions do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey
2: probably for the wrong reasons i i remember coming back from milan in a honda nsx mainly because i was extremely hung over at the start of the trip um but uh nsx was amazing you know as um when it took New an old. nsx it was the old one, so it was around yeah. 2001. We'd taken Jaguar had a X600 project that never came to be. We had six NXXs as benchmark cars. Okay. Took one wet, wet handling testing at Pirelli's facility in just outside Milan. We we're testing this NSX or wet tyres. Only spun it once, um, which was quite hard because it, it, the NSX would go happy, 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 and then just no, I'm not happy anymore. What was that? <laughs> um, but what a car! And then um, there's been other trips just with other groups of engineers you know we've done like three or four car convoys from germany over the alps down to italy for testing and Mm. um you're driving a prototype car that is covered in camouflage and bags and you know you got it's the balance of attention that you think is funny and then attention that you don't really want at the same time you know so Things like that. I, I, I used, haven't done those for so long, but I used to really enjoy doing that.
0: Yeah, that sounds, sounds quite fun. Five car garage, unlimited value. Got a <laughs> um, uh, Porsche nine five
2: nine, because it's my interesting. Car. Porsche nine five nine is my childhood car. Um, you know, in the era of F forty nine five nine, last contact whatever. I was just nine five
0: nine.
2: I think because it was full of tech, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's 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 what I was into. Um, Porsche nine five nine, I um, McLaren F one, just because again it was like the pinnacle. I'd actually have an EV, I, just because the you know live with the iPace six months. Uh, EV for what? When an EV is being used, what it's good at, amazing. When they so when you have to go when you have to go a long distance, total pain in the ass. Um, I don't know which one. I do like the I Pace. I might even stick that in there. And then nine nine seven GT three RS nine nine seven Mark two. So that'd be three point eight. Mm-hmm. And um, what would I have as a fifth car Alpine A one ten. Yeah, five cars. bosh yeah. done.
0: What do you think of the um, the T fifty then? It's like the sort of continuation of that line that started with the F one.
2: I haven't got into it as well as I had the the original F1. Yeah. Because it's, maybe because it's a bit um, F1 reboot in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But I totally understand the ethos behind it. I'm totally into the kind of like, you know, it's all about the driving and so on and so forth. So um, I I always admired Gordon Murray's like, kind of no compromise approach in a lot of areas so yeah yeah that's worked
0: out really well yeah no same i i think i i, I could pass on the looks i don't i don't think it looks that good i think it's okay yeah the, yeah i know what you mean yeah but the engineering and the thought and the ethos going into it you're like hey, i mean it's going to be unbelievable to drive isn't it it's yeah, just yeah. going to be an yeah. absolute absolute thing if you could only drive one car for the rest of your life what would it be and you're allowed a five hundred pound something else on the side.
2: Oh, interesting! I do you know what I actually did this once. Um, I had an M3 CSL and a five hundred pound Peugeot three hundred six sedan diesel. Nice, um, nice. Yeah, but if I was to bring that up to date, it'll be uh, it'll be a nine nine seven GT3 RS again. Mm. That's um, I, that's that's for me. That's peak GT3, and GT3 is what I'm. Most into as like a type of car,
0: yeah, yeah, that makes sense. They're very good. Yeah. <laughs> I very much enjoy mine, <laughs>
2: yes, I'm very envious.
0: <laughs> uh, what do you think is the best value car under 50k?
2: I think it might be that the new GI guys bang, bang. What mm. are you going to get more fun performance, whatever, for what is it, 33,000 for a circuit pack car? Yeah. Something of that nature. Have you driven but, one? Uh, I haven't. I, I know I'm, i think I'm up to about seven friends that have got one now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but um, now I've been offered. Need need to uh, need to do it.
0: Yeah. It's it's very cool. It, it's it's got all of the stuff we were talking about, like with Project A of like as a project, it's a very cool project, what they've done to the car. Um I thought it was fun. I I think it could be more fun. Um, so it could probably do with some life one tening.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, you know, I, one of, um one of my friends has already sent me photos of suspension underneath saying yeah. can we adjust, <laughs> what 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 can we adjust here then and, and everywhere? So uh, you know, it's um, uh I don't think the camera's adjustable from what I could see. So I think there's it would need more bespoking to actually yeah. get some changes into it.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm keen to go and um bug Ian at Litchfield and have a go in there once see what they've done yeah yeah to it and, and changed it and whatnot right final question what's the most interesting car to you at the moment
2: well I mean, without too much, giving too much away the Lotus Emira I'm very interested in um yeah because I so hope that they've actually finally created something that's going to hit some volume you know that's, that's what we're all hoping yeah. for aren't we you know, I often describe the Alpine A one ten as like a, a lotus without all the reasons not to buy it. Um yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that's what I'm hoping they fix because uh the Amira Yeah, you know, the Amira customer is gonna be quite similar to an A one ten customer potentially. Yeah. Depends on how much it costs, isn't it? Um, it depends on so many things. I yeah. I I went and
0: drove a, an Avora GT four ten again the other day. Yeah. And there's so many there's so much about it and the ethos that I love. But there's also so much about it that's not like I can see why. It's it's the car built for like we were saying very early on, like your engineering wanna drive yeah. X type of way. As soon as you're not that person, it, it starts to you look at it and go, Hmm, okay. This is a bit weird. But the yeah, with the the next one I I just really hope, I really hope they nail that ethos but with like 2021 2025 kind of stuff yeah to, to pad it out yeah like you don't have so. a weird immobilizing key in and all that sort
2: of stuff <laughs> no, that's right yeah yeah or, or or borrow you know well i'm not going to criticize the entertainment too much because the alpine yeah. is <laughs> the worst thing about it yeah that was pretty um, awful. But yeah you know so it's 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 those you know, I've driven Evora a few times, and you think, as you say, it's it's great at doing that. It's very, very good at doing that thing. And then you go, oh, I'd never buy one because it's eighty five grand, and there's too many other things I couldn't live with. You know, and yeah. and that's that's what they need to fix, isn't it? They've 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 never needed to fix what's good about them. It's fixing all the other bits, um, yeah. that to get something that appeals to many more people and, and actually would give you a reason to go and buy
0: it. Yeah. And I've always looked at like an Evora and gone, okay, but I'd probably get a Porsche GT4 or something, you know, it's, it's something like that or an yeah. old GT3 or, you know, a 997 GT3 or something all around a similar sort of price point. If, if Lotus can keep the weight, if, if it can be light, like yeah. actually slightly almost light in yeah. comparison to other stuff, it'll be, it will be great. We'll see. It's not
2: that long now. No, and of course, um, Alpine and Lotus are supposedly doing an EV joint yes. sports car study, aren't they? They so, are. Um, that, that interests me, of course, because, you know, yeah. I'm hoping to stick with Alpine as a brand.
0: I think that's that as a as a sort of an electric car to come out, I think a lot of people are watching and going, can they, you know, this is the opportunity for someone to make a fun electric car that's hopefully yeah. lightweight, and we'll yeah.
2: see. Yeah, and no, so I'm... I'm I'm definitely um, understanding of what EVs are good at, and they're very good at it. But then the bits that they aren't very good at, they're really not very good at. And that's, that's, the, that's the trouble with them, isn't it?
0: Yeah, we'll see. We shall see. Right, well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. That's been
2: great. Thanks for having me.